But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears, that you would keep us present, that we would come believing, we would come honestly to what this text says, what the hymns that we've heard and sang are saying, and that we would have revealed to us this truth that we might believe, maybe for the first time, maybe in a long time, but God, you can do that and we need you to. We need you to show us again that you are the ultimate security and everything else that we put our security in ultimately will be insecure. Your peace is what we long for and what we need. But Lord, there's so many competing things. So help us, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the best Christmas ever. I really mean that. I've said it every Christmas since I was a child. But when I come to this place on Christmas Eve, I'm still stunned that I'm in this role. I really am. And specifically at this church. What we have been hearing and what we're still to hear is truly remarkable. It's men and women using the gifts that God has given them to bring glory to the king. They don't want applause. They just simply want to use the gifts God's given them. But time and time again, 16 years now, I've been in this church, here in this sanctuary, at the five o'clock service and then at the 10 o'clock. And I'm stunned every time. There's just a few nights of the year that have this kind of magnitude where you can't imagine it could ever get better. But God reveals again his glory and shows us anew the wonder of this mystery of the incarnation. And it's like a little child. So many tomorrow will say, this is the best Christmas ever. How many of you said that as a kid? I'm just curious. Raise your hand. 
most everyone raised their hand. We feel that way. It was a weird thing for me to say as a child because on Christmas, the way my parents set it up was we would open gifts on Christmas Eve that they had given us that were wrapped. And I'm going to be honest, I was never surprised. And I was never disappointed. But there was never a gift given to me that was wrapped that was in my parents' in my home before Christmas that I didn't know what it was. I learned at an early age to take an exacto knife, to cut the tape, to open it up and just take a peek. And then I would know what I'm getting. And I would do that for all the gifts, for all of my siblings. (laughs) I was never surprised. And I was never disappointed. And children, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) But it created a debate in my marriage My wife is not a snooper. She doesn't want to know. She thinks it will ruin the surprise. I think the opposite. It never ruined the surprise. It just made me feel excited and full of anticipation of what I'm going to receive. And I was never disappointed. I get to see this bulletin days before I get to experience this. None of it really is a surprise. Yet it feels like it almost every time. And I'm never disappointed. You guys and you all, it is an amazing blessing to worship God together. We sing hymns that we love at Christmas time. And the best carols that we sing have so many things in common. At the heart, they're seeking to put Jesus as the emphasis. This night is the 200th anniversary of the first time Silent Night was sung. It's amazing. You can read about it in your bulletin later. Not now. 200 years of Christians singing the same song about something that happened over 2,000 years ago. Some of you come tonight, and you're like, I don't know if I believe that anymore. And I get that. But I want you to be careful to just flush something away because of your own experience in life. When for so long, really smart people and people with average intelligence, people who are highly emotional and people who are really stable have been singing what this word says to be true about God. And I think we all owe it to what this means to at least give consideration. 200 years singing the same songs about something that happened 2,000 years ago, really even longer than that. The best Christmas carols do many things for us, but when we move out of just the sweet sentiment of this season and into what really is the songwriter saying, we begin to see really profound things. And the best carols that we have are carols that do two things— They reveal the brokenness of the world that we're in, externally, the brokenness that we see all around us. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, you can't deny the brokenness of the world. But then also, not just the external, but also the internal, the brokenness that is within us from disease, depression, despair, sadness, loneliness, whatever it is. And the very best Christmas carols will take those two things— that external brokenness, that internal brokenness, and point, it to, point us to where it comes from. It comes from original sin. 
going all the way back to Genesis. And that original sin has come against us and it's in us. But the hymns also point to the rescue. They point to the one who had to come. The one who had to come and taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. Knew no end. The one who walked and tasted all that we taste. These hymns speak of this profound brokenness, but also this remarkable rescue, this cascading grace that just flows over and over and over again. The hymn that we just sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is such a hymn. I want to tell you a little bit about this hymn, speaking about the man who wrote it. His name was Phillips Brooks. He was brilliant. He graduated Harvard at the age of 20 in 1855. He was a priest in the Episcopal Church. He experienced the external brokenness of a world. Sometimes we tend to think that the world we're living in right now is like the only time in history that it's been this bad. Well, he was ministering during the time of the Civil War. In fact, he wrote this hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, in 1865. The Civil War ended in April 1865. He wrote this hymn riding a horse from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. He was there in Bethlehem to be part of a worship service that would take place during the Christmas season. And on that journey, riding through those hills, in a sense reliving what had happened 2,000 years before, he writes these words. It was a poem. As I said earlier, the best Christmas carols reflect the external brokenness of our world. And he knew of the external brokenness. He's a minister during the time of this country's darkest hours. 1865, April, the Civil War ends. Abraham Lincoln is shot and killed. And Phillips Brooks, the one who wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem, is the one who preaches at his funeral. Did you know that? Seven months later, riding a horse, he writes these lyrics that speak of darkness and hope in the midst of fears. His darkness, though, wasn't just external. It wasn't just an awareness that we really are in a broken world where brothers fighting against brother, brothers killing brother, a nation is divided. His brokenness also came from his own internal experience. He attended, before Harvard, the Boston Latin School. He graduated, as I mentioned, Harvard in 1855 at the age of 20. And then he worked briefly back at the school he attended, Boston Latin. And he was fired. He says about this moment, think about how old he is. He says, I do not know what will become of me. And I do not care much. 
I wish I were 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or other, I do not seem in the way to come to much now. What do you hear there? I hear cynicism, failure, despair, hopelessness. Do you ever feel hopeless? Do you ever wish that you could go back to 15 or 25 or 40 or a point in your life when you suddenly took a turn that you never expected to take or you begin to participate in a habit that would become an addiction that would overwhelm you? Do you ever wish you could go back? Internally, You're not the person you thought you would be. Your life is not where you thought it would be. There's setbacks, dashed dreams, poor decisions. And then if you take a moment to lift your eyes off of what's going on inside and the brokenness of sin that's there, and you look outside, you see injustice, you see poverty, you see hypocrisy. I know if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, maybe one of the biggest stumbling blocks for you is people like me and people like us. And you know what? You're right. We're not perfect. I've never met a Christian who said he was. Never met a Christian who said she was. We fall short. We're bad examples. It's all true. And that's why we needed Jesus to live that perfect life so he could cover our imperfections. Don't let Christians' poor examples keep you from seeing if this is true. You know internally that it's not all perfect in your own life. You know externally, certainly you can't deny it's not perfect. Because it's not. So Jesus ministers to this young priest. He's riding a horse, going on a journey to see the very small city where Jesus was born. He pins this line in the first stanza, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. So imagine him riding and seeing it from a distance. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. So imagine as he's looking up, Though the town of Bethlehem would have looked different than it did 2,000 years ago, the sky is exactly the same. It's the exact same sky. And there, as he's looking up, he writes these words. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. It's not lanterns. It's not fire. It is Jesus in the manger. The hopes and fears Of all the years, the years from the beginning to the years of when Micah, the prophet, wrote these words to the moment he's on this horse, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What is hope? Tomorrow, I'm hoping for a white Christmas. 
the weatherman says it will be 65 and rainy. Where's your faith? You see, that's not hope. It's wishful thinking, maybe, but it's not hope. Sinclair Ferguson, he's preached here before, a wonderful theologian, has a brand new book on Advent called Love's Come Down. And he describes hope this way. As I read it, you're going to get why I like it. Biblical hope looks like this. Quote, imagine a child catching a glimpse of his father sneaking something into the house that is difficult to carry and has two big wheels. If later you were to ask the child, what are you hoping for this Christmas? He would reply with a big grin, I'm hoping for a new bicycle. Do you think you will get it? Oh, yes, I'm sure. That's hope in the biblical sense. It's being sure that you will receive something that you don't yet have. Do you understand? A boy sees accidentally, not like me, that this gift is coming. And so he knows that when Christmas Day arrives, the thing he's wanted most will be there. And so with absolute confidence, he can say to the one who asks, what is it you hope for for Christmas? A bike? Do you think you'll get it? I know I'll get it. That is Christianity. God has promised us that he would save us. Our hope is in his promise. And his promise is in the deliverance of the way of salvation, which is his son. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, this promise of sending Jesus into this world to live the life that we could never live, meaning he had to live it perfectly, to die the death we all deserve to die, to conquer death, to raise and reign as king, and then to return. That is God's oldest promise. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, when God says, there will be a seed, and Jesus is that one. He has come. It's God's oldest promise, fulfilled in that manger but it's also God's costliest promise. In order for that promise to be fulfilled, God is going to give us, sinners, all of us, his own son. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul goes on to write, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, his costliest promise, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The reason we connect deeply to powerful music is because music, when it's best, is honest about our condition and honest about the ways in which we try to affect that condition. 
Christian or non-Christian, religious or not religious, all people know the world is broken. If they're honest, they can see it externally. If they're even more honest, they'll admit it's true internally. And because of that brokenness, which is the result of sin, all mankind seeks to meet that need. And in doing so, we seek to find something that is secure. The greatest temptation for all of us is to, is to put our security in insecure things. Money, status, relationships, work, hobbies, anything that we think that can ultimately meet that need. Jesus came to this earth to reveal to us that he is that one ultimate secure thing. And that when we hope in him, it's not just wishful thinking. It is the fulfillment of a promise where already this moment, this time, we can see something of what one day all who are in Christ will see fully. And this I promise you, you're going to be surprised. And you're not going to be disappointed. Some people hesitate coming to faith in Christ because they're afraid that they're going to be surprised in a bad way and definitely disappointed. I'm surrendering my life to someone else. If that's where you are, then let me encourage you. Put security in yourself as fast as you can. Run as fast as you can and depending just on you. And when you run headlong hard into a wall, just be honest. How secure are you really in yourself? My friends, there's one secure thing. And it's a person. This person is God. This God has fulfilled his promise. It's his oldest promise, and it's his costliest promise. He's giving us himself. As he gives us himself, this side of heaven, he never promises to take away the pain, not this side of heaven. There's still going to be the consequences of sin externally and internally. But what's going to happen as you trust in Jesus is you realize that he is giving you himself now, already, and one day fully. Philip Brooks discovered that. Ten years after he wrote I'm not sure what will become of me. He became a man known as the greatest American preacher in the 19th century. He experienced tremendous brokenness externally and internally. So on that horse, 
seven months away from delivering the message at Abraham Lincoln's funeral, seven months away from the surrender of the South, moving slowly towards Bethlehem, he writes this poem. Two years later, he would give this poem to his organist. And he would say, would you put these words to a tune so that we could use this in our children's service? It's for our children. I believe that they never really thought much would become of that hymn. That it would simply be a hymn that they did that Sunday in 1867, December. 150 years later, Christians all over the world sing what you just sang about God fulfilling his oldest promise and his costliest. It's worth considering, isn't it? I really believe it is. May you think deeply upon the wonder of this gift and all that you have heard and seen this night. And if the Spirit of God stirs in you at this moment to believe, then come and see me or Pete or somebody sitting with you that you have a sense believes what I've just been saying. Surrender your life to Jesus. It's the only secure reality, and it's forever. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that your mercy and grace has been revealed to us through your word. Externally, Father, we look up and see that something, someone had to make all of this. But then there is this moment when you stir us inside and we begin to believe, and that is your grace. Do that in our hearts now, Father, for all who are here. Keep us present as we listen, as we sing, and as we worship you. The one fulfillment of God's great promise. In Jesus' name, amen.